is that over the next two hours, we'll be able to think about the way that anger and escalation fit together. And we'll talk about some ways to treat and prevent, and also some ways to deal with these issues and these risks in the moment. So I want to start out by getting a couple of definitions so that we can be talking about the same thing, right? So what is anger? We'll be looking at it as a psychobiological emotional state, uh, maybe more syllables than were actually needed, but by psychobiological, if you you know, take it piece by piece, you can see the way that you think about what your body's doing that leads you to a conclusion that that's your emotion. And that anger can range from on the low end, things like irritation and annoyance, to the boiling point of fury and rage. Anger also can be thought of as a motivational state, almost like a predictor. If someone is angry, then they are more likely to be aggressive, a motivational state associated with aggression. We'll look at escalation. You know, an escalation has a couple other names. Any of those would be just fine for our purposes if you call it a freak out, a meltdown, or a blow up. It's all in that same group. But we're looking at this process of becoming more intensely negative and riskier through a vicious cycle. And anger is something that people feel, and it's also something that we interpret in others. And we have to pick up clues from others to see if they're angry. For our purposes today, thinking of a client, how can I tell if the client is angry? What does it look, sound like? Um, I'll go over some of the basics of that, the stereotypical signs of anger in someone else, but then we'll talk about some of the nuances. So first of all, what does it look like? Well, it typically looks like muscle tension. And so the eyebrows come down, the jaw might tighten. Sometimes the open hands turn to fist, the shoulders come up a bit. That muscle tension also includes things like agitation. So the feet start moving. And that might be about pacing or that might be about walking toward, most typically toward, the problem. Sometimes walking away, very often walking toward. What does it look like? It looks like gestures that are expansive. The arms play a very different role in trying to get the point across when a person is angry. What's it sound like, typically? It gets louder. It gets louder. It gets sharper. It, it has a tendency in terms of content to include more profanity and threats. Oddly enough, it doesn't get mixed up typically with anger. You know, sometimes other emotions like fear, when the person's talking, it gets mixed up and jumbled a lot. But with anger, it tends to be pretty direct. We, we don't have a question. You know, someone's getting threatened. The context is interesting because stereotypically, we look for the trigger. What just happened that led to this person getting angry? We... We hope for a shared context where I can understand, I see what happened. But we also know that with our clients, you know, on the furthest end of that, clients who are experiencing psychosis, 
That context sometimes happens between their ears. We can't experience it. So a hallucination or delusion can lead someone to be angry. But let's also kind of work that continuum back to the shared experience. Um, somewhere in the middle of that might be a context of something that someone is ruminating about or having an uncontrollably negative, emotion-laden thought. You know, dialing that that continuum a little further. A lot of interactions, and certainly right for the past 10 months for us, our interactions have occurred just like this one through a device. And the context could be something that's happening in, over the phone, a series of texts back and forth. And then of course, we also know with tendencies. And we'll speak about that as we move ahead in this uh, couple hours. But the tendencies, some people tend to get angry more. Some people respond to triggers in a more quick and exaggerated way. When we called it a psychobiological emotional state, psychobiological, the way you think about what you're feeling, internally, that's one thing. But as we've been talking about, externally, that's something else. How do, how do I take the cues of someone else and determine that they're angry? And that's got to go through my own eyes, ears, and brain to get made sense of. Let's, let's talk about a couple pieces to that. For those of you who may have months and months ago attended a training that I uh, did on de-escalation, I used the same slide. So I won't spend too much time on this. But this was an experiment done at UCLA maybe five or six years ago where they divided you know, two groups of sub, they divided the subject pool into two. Half of the subjects saw the top pictures, the person standing there with the picture of the knife beside them. The other half of the participants saw the picture of the guy holding the knife. They were told, here's a picture of a person who likes to cook, right? You can see it's kitchen knife. Here's a picture of a guy who likes to cook. To what degree would you presume that this person is feeling? And they asked about three different emotional states. One was fear, one was disgust, and one was anger. Well, what they found was there was no difference between what the two groups of subjects, and they didn't see both, right? They either saw one picture or the other. There was no difference between the two groups in terms of how fearful they felt this person was. There was no difference between the two groups in terms of how disgusted they saw this person. However, subjects saw the person in the picture of the bottom more angry than the picture on the top. And for us being able to see both side by side, we can see they're the same picture with a digital manipulation of the hand and the arm. But other than that, the same picture, the same expression, same person, same muscle tension, same posture, same everything. And more angry. Well, because UCLA is filled with uh, sophisticated researchers, they replicated it. And so when you replicate a study, you want to see, did, you know, did we find something odd just that one time or let's do it again? So then 
they had pairs of pictures, just like the ones we saw. And maybe they wondered, you know, is it about the fact that it wasn't in its hand? So then they put something in the person's hand that was connected with the activity in the description. This is a picture of someone who likes cooking. This is a picture of someone who likes gardening. And in the person's hand, they placed an object that could be seen as a weapon relative to one that would be seen as relatively benign. Still with this replication, the person who was seen holding the object more like a weapon was more likely to be seen as angry. Huh. Back to our definition of anger, a motivational state often associated with aggression. So determining if someone else is angry in some ways is based on how much of a threat do I think that person is. The degree to which I see that person as a threat to me will change the way that I interpret how angry they are. The researchers didn't mention this part, but I think uh, it came across in my mind, and maybe it came across in yours as well, as a diversity aspect as well, where we might think, oh, shoot, are people more likely to see others as potentially more threatening? And in particular, to give specifics to that, uh, African-American males between the ages of 15 and 30. Our people, and our mind probably goes to police, but it could be any number of groups who make decisions about angry people or decisions about people. Is there a potential bias there influencing, distorting the degree to which someone sees anger in someone else? Toward that end, I really want to say that in order to be good at our job, we have to gain insight into our own potential biases, right? It's very easy in this world to see biases in others, right? We can spot flaws in others uh, pretty darn clearly, but boy, it's hard to see in ourselves. So I will make a recommendation and I hope you take me up on it. There's no football this weekend, so you got time. Uh, go to a website, implicit.harvard.edu. And this site, we, we don't have time today to you know, explain and go through the whole way they do it, but it's really so clever to take a look at our own potential for implicit biases, the way we might view one group of people, not just by race, it could be skin tone, it could be um, Asians, it could be based on weight or disability. There are any number of categories on which this website gives you an opportunity to go through and engage in an exercise online. You know, if, you, if you haven't done it, you'll find it to be so clever. Uh, but it also gives you feedback about your own potential for biases. You don't have to turn it into your boss and confess to anything. It's not like that. The idea, maybe even going back to you know, old school mental health education and training, in order to be most helpful for our clients, we want to really understand ourselves as well as we can. Having said that, I'll now outline some of what we're going to be doing today.
Um, this group, it says NICE 2015, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. Uh, I think they were more interested in their acronym spelling something than in reflecting the actual words of who they are, but that'll work. Uh, we're going to look at prevention and recognition strategies. We'll look at assessment also. We'll look at verbal communication, body, attitude. We'll look at ways to set limits and some environmental controls. Then we'll also talk about, I think, an important piece to what we just addressed, the degree to which we interpret others' behavior. I think it's really connected to our own self-care. Self-care isn't just about us feeling better. It's about us performing better. We are more effective in helping people get better when our own self-control is in play. If we are dysregulated, our decisions are, our communication is compromised. So let's do it. Let's start with some recognition. How can we assess anger? There are two measures. I think they're both outstanding. They're not necessary to do, but if you're in a position where you can order them or the organization with whom you work um, is interested in using these to uh, you know, maybe run an anger group or to work with particular clients, then awesome. One is the State Trait Anger Expression Inventory, has a nickname of the STAXI, State Trait Anger Expression Inventory, STAXI. The other is the Anger and Provocation Inventory. That one's kind of more known by its author's name. Sometimes people call it the Novaco. So we have the Staxi and the Novaco. Right, who knew measures have nicknames? But I guess they do. The State Trait Anger Expression Inventory considers and, and asks people about intensity of anger that they might feel at a particular time. And it asks about their tendency to just kind of be angry in general, right? I'm a hot-headed person. <laughs> As opposed to if someone cuts me off on the freeway, I feel like yelling at them. So the state, how you feel in any given moment, and the trait, how are you in general? And part of the way they validate these, and I know we have um, a mix of guilds and professions on the call, sometimes when we look at these things, we look at uh, the impact they can have. So the Staxi breaks it down into anger expression and anger control. Anger expression out uh, is a tendency for someone to express their anger ex aggressively, to yell, shout, break things, threaten, hit. Anger expression in is the tendency, you know, maybe in, in our phrasing, we would say to stuff it down but the tendency for someone to sort of seethe or boil silently. Also though looks at and asks about strategies to control. Does someone control their expression outward? Do they work out extra to control their anger? Or do they control it inwardly, self-talk? deep breathing, that sort of stuff. The Novaco has two parts. Uh, one is how the person experiences the anger. The other is situations. 
that lead to anger. That's the provocation inventory, the anger scale and provocation inventory. And this one in terms of its validity kind of separates those who are likely to assault and those who aren't, those who are likely to be violent following discharge from a hospital. Back to the idea of anger as a motivational state often associated with aggression. So when we're looking at both of those scales and what separates the normative groups on either the Staxi or the Navaco, blood pressure for those who show trait anger on the Staxi or anger expression in that tendency to soothe, to, to seethe or kind of silently boil inwardly, um, they tend to have high blood pressure. So this is an area where in terms of the whole person care, the nursing staff and our clinical staff can be working closely together to connect our clients' tendencies and hopefully uh, improvement rates where the blood pressure can get more under control in some ways by the anger control. Coronary heart disease, anger expression out, trade anger. You know, even for that anger expression in, going into that tendency to seethe, uh, where people are sometimes thinking that that's a method of control, but really it's not. They're just as angry. They're ruminating. They're losing sleep. Just, you know, other people can't see it as much. Chronic pain and depression in those who have PTSD. Those who have experienced intimate partner violence. Trade anger, anger expression out. Lower on anger expression control. Let's take a look at some of the risks and myths connected with anger, right? Why, why should we even bother helping people with their anger? Well, we just learned that their health is at stake, right? But also people get arrested when their anger expression out leads to property destruction and assault. People get hurt. Relationships end, and this is part of an, a, a vicious cycle of its own, whereas people's anger becomes more destructive, they lose more relationships, therefore they become more isolated, and their mental health gets even worse as a result. Lack of anger control gets people fired. Well, let's talk about some of the myths associated with anger. They haven't found an anger gene. So certainly exposure to anger, people who are, for example, um, who lived through childhood physical abuse, uh, have as a symptom moving forward in their life, very often dysregulation and sometimes aggression. It's not inevitable and it's changeable and it's certainly not genetic. Does anger always lead to aggression? No. That's about uncontrolled, dysregulated anger. And might there even be something like constructive anger? Well, we'll talk about that as we move forward and look at some of the way that the different evidence-based practices incorporate anger into their protocols.
But no, anger is, does not inevitably lead to aggression. And anger is not necessarily bad. Do aggressive and angry people get their way? Well, not in the long term. And that's a little bit tricky sometimes as we're working with our clients to, to talk through because, you know, in the short term, sometimes angry people and aggressive people do get their way. And this idea of being able to think about the longer term impact as opposed to the short term. If you scream loud enough in line, uh, at Pollo Loco, they might get you your burrito quicker, but they might also tell you to not come back again. You get the short-term payoff at the long-term expense. And you know, decades ago, there used to be this idea that said, well, let's vent your anger, kind of get it out. Let's look at this as a pot that's boiling and let's take the lid off so that it doesn't become explosive. Therefore, uh, punch a pillow, right? Um, bust stuff instead of getting in a fight. However, turns out that's a myth. Uh, that does not help people to control their anger. In fact, it's honestly more likely to backfire. Uh, the idea of shaping your hand into a fist and punching the pillow, um, you know, there may be a time when a pillow's not around, uh, and if your only coping strategy is to punch, you're kind of stuck. So if a client does get triggered, you know, how do we prevent this escalation? How do we, you know, keep that rocket from taking off? And, you know, sometimes with our clients, we describe these anger escalations as going from zero to 60 in no time flat. We have to be able to sometimes think about prediction, right? Um, how do you tell if it's getting ready to rain? Just think about prevention. Sometimes prevention and de-escalation almost begins in the middle chapter of the book. How can you tell if it's getting ready to rain, right? Um, what do you do? Well, in terms of getting ready to rain, we might be checking our phone to see what the weather app says. We might be looking at the TV or reading online. Might be talking to other people. We might be looking at the sky. Is it gray and windy? Um, is it starting to sprinkle? And these are the same things that we want to put in place with our clients. How do we keep an eye and an ear and a nose on things at the clinic, on a home visit, over Zoom or on the phone? How do we keep an eye on what might lead us to predict, forecast? Sometimes that's about the client's patterns. Sometimes that's written um, in the chart, sometimes that's about what we talk about in our treatment team meetings. Sometimes it's about what we talk about with the client and hopefully their family, if we've got that kind of involvement in the treatment. It's a pattern. Part of the good news and bad news of escalation with a client is we are probably not present for their very first escalation.
probably happened before. It's probably a pattern. It's probably a pattern that's landed them in trouble, and that's how they're at the clinic and how they're at your agency, how they're part of the department's treatment. However, that's not just bad news. It also includes the idea that if it's a pattern, we can predict it. We can predict it, we can prevent it. If we can predict it, we can prevent it. That's the good news, right? So how do we do that? And when I say we, how do we do that? Let's broaden that circle. So that it's not just how can we as the treatment providers predict and prevent. Boy, there's a lot to be gained by the client for being able to predict their own patterns, their own actions, being able to prevent their own mistakes, being able to break the cycle. And we want to help our clients to be able to see these patterns. This is where the treatment comes in, right? That might include understanding their anger, and it might include controlling or preventing their anger. So in this particular section, we're going to look at some diagnostic pictures and some evidence-based practices and acknowledge, you know, different even theoretical orientations will approach anger management differently. I won't be talking about the treatment protocols for this, but it's really a compelling thought, you know, within the Ericksonian literature looking at, it's not about helping someone decrease their anger, that it's about replacing anger with positive emotions. So retraining and helping someone be able to experience compassion instead of decrease their anger. And when they experience that compassion, that then becomes incompatible with anger. And anger diagnostically is part of several different diagnoses, right? It's connected with depression. It's connected with PTSD. It's connected with bipolar, intermittent explosive disorder, the psychotic disorders, certainly substance abuse. Anger is part of several different diagnoses. While the anger management literature uh, often looks at, you know, an anger management group or how do you run those groups, it's also embedded within several different EBPs as a section on how they deal with it. So today what we're going to talk about are three of those EBPs, some of which you may already be familiar with. If not, uh, I'll recommend all three. I think they're terrific. ART, Aggression Replacement Training. IPT, Interpersonal Psychotherapy for Depression. And Seeking Safety. Now, ART, Aggression Replacement Training, really follows along the cognitive behavioral model of anger. In fact, Novako from the Novako Anger and Provocation Inventory is one of the major cognitive behavioral 
theoreticians regarding anger. We'll, we will look at his model as a way to even understand part of ART. Originally, it was built for teens, but it works with adults. With interpersonal psychotherapy for depression, there are two parts of that statement that ring out to you. One is the interpersonal, and the other is for depression. And the interpersonal aspect of what about anger that shows up during interpersonal disputes, arguments, conflict, relationships that are ruptured. And within IPT, for those of you who are familiar with it, you'll remember that attachment style connects. So the attachment style, as it moves away from a secure or preoccupied or anxious attachment style toward a more dismissive attachment style, that is also connected with the way that they see anger. Within seeking safety, and seeking safety is a, an EBP designed to address the combination of trauma experience and addiction or substance use. They look at anger in some ways as a shield for other painful emotions. Now, that's not the way that we had defined anger at the beginning of this, but let's pause for just a second to acknowledge that is a legit definition as well. And uh, some people will say, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. I've heard that phrasing before, meaning that anger is there because there's a different level of vulnerability to some of the other emotions, loss, isolation, loneliness, those sort of things. And anger is maybe a step more comfortable. So anger can be a shield for other painful emotions is the way that seeking safety looks at it. And for those clients who have been through trauma and also addiction, who are going through perhaps even trauma and addiction, they may feel angry at those who hurt them, the world, God, himself, life, their family. Uh, you know, I, I had gotten this from the reference, but I just realized they left out us, the treatment providers. We can be on the other end of that anger as well, of course. So let's start with that cognitive behavioral model of anger from Navaco. We'll walk our way through it, and you'll probably, as we take a look at this, start to see, oh, heck yeah, there's, there's a spot where I can do something. So here we look at something happens, right? Here's the trigger. So something occurs, and when it does, then two things start happening in the person. Their body kind of jumps off. Changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and adrenaline release. And they have a process of appraisal, cognitions that come up. And this isn't a short, you know, a checklist that someone might go through um, in a planful way. It's more like an instinctual set of cognitions. Was that on purpose toward me? And under their control, 
It's a little bit of that, did that just happen? Type of cognition. Was that on purpose toward me and under their control? There's a trigger. A body jumps off. And did that just happen? Cognitions occur. Well, here we have our very first example of escalation. The degree to which the body experience is more intense actually makes more likely these cognitions to land on anger. Did that just happen? Oh, hell no, right? As the body is hopping even more, it makes it more likely that the person will reach the conclusion that it was intentional, personal, and controllable. And the degree to which someone reaches these conclusions hype up their body. So here we have escalation number one. And when these two pieces are happening, that's what leads to anger. A, a psycho-biological emotional state. And then with that anger, then the person does something. And we had talked about anger expression out or anger expression in. Anger expression out, antagonism. And the more we see with antagonism, which also often includes stepping right up to the trigger, anger expression out, now they're stepping right up to the trigger. Anger expression in, here come the cognitions, the ruminations. Now we've got a whole other escalation possibility feeding back into this system that can intensify it. When we look at this model, we can see right here, okay, these thoughts might be an area for us to focus on in treatment because some people are more or less likely to see it as intentional, personal, and controllable. There's a pretty uh, standard finding with aggressive children that they have what's called the hostile attribution bias, the tendency to think that other things were done against them on purpose, the hostile attribution bias. Here's another one. When we look at the, the more likely the body is to react in terms of heart rate, blood pressure, and adrenaline, well, okay, this starts to lead us to Relaxation strategies. If we can decrease these, maybe we can have an impact on this escalation. And certainly, in terms of well, what do you do when, right? This aspect of escalation, now we're looking at coping strategies. And in fact, within anger replacement training, ART, they label this chain, and this wasn't just. Um, Novako, there's any number of researchers that are connected with this, but they look at reducers and reminders to address just what we were talking about. Here with arousal, to address those cues, they've got reducers. That includes, as part of treatment, deep breathing, backward counting, and pleasant imagery. Well, when do you do those as treatment professionals? You don't wait for someone to get angry, right? You do this during meetings with the client. You practice, right? When things are 
calm and cool. And you talk to them about if a, if you find yourself in a situation, and let's even talk about some of the patterns that we know in your life tend to get you upset. If you're headed toward the situation, let's practice some deep breathing before you even get near that trigger. Backward counting does two things. Uh, the first is it maybe moves a little bit more activity toward the frontal lobe and away from the limbic system where emotion tends to storm. But it also just buys some time. So when you say count backwards from 10, at least you're pausing things for 10 seconds. And helping lock someone pleasant imagery in someone's mind. Ways to address the arousal. And then these reminders are ways to address those thoughts. And it's about being able to introduce self-talk, to be able to almost kind of in their head be telling stuff, all right, take it easy, just chill out. And of course, with you and the client, you come up with what phrase they might lock in as their go-to in those moments, but find a way to say it. And even to be able to intentionally insert, that might not have been on purpose. It looked it, but it might not have been on purpose. They'll say, okay, it's time for my plan. I got this. These are reminders to address the way that these triggers occur. And then finally, when we look at coping strategies, being able to keep their hands open. We mentioned before that muscle tension is a very typical signal of anger. And sometimes that muscle tension includes open hands closing up. That's the shape of a fist. And to purposely keep the hands open. To practice, if you're starting to feel anger, take a seat. Work out your anger sitting down. Because the tendency very often with antagonism is to step toward the problem. To be able to speak in a softer voice. And really, I didn't even include, but as people step toward the something that happens, the something that happens can be escalating too. If this was someone who shoved our client, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, in a, you know, a group or a crowd stepping past them, if our client steps toward and shoves them back, well, now this person has started to escalate themselves. So we have more than one tornado swirling at a time. Let's move past ART and talk about seeking safety. With seeking safety, remember, that's the evidence-based practice that addresses people with a trauma history and addiction. But look at anger as being part of recovery. And the idea there was that the substance use was being used as something of a coping strategy to address the anger and resentment that the person was been feeling because of what they've gone through. And a little history about seeking safety uh, the first group that it had been applied to were women. And the nature of trauma that women experience differently than what men experience in terms of violence toward women, it's more typically by someone they know and trust than it is for men. For men, that violence toward them is more often by a stranger for women. More typically, it's by someone they know and trust. So there's a betrayal aspect to it. Seeking safety 
applies equally well for men and women. But as it was first put together, that element of betrayal really was highlighted. And that anger is connected. Betrayal leads to anger. Heck yeah. In Seeking Safety, they really do look at the definition of anger a little bit differently than our original definition. But they also talk about constructive anger can be learned, going back to that myth that anger leads to aggression. No, not all the time. Constructive anger can be learned. Anger can have motivational energy to it when it's not past the level of controllability. It's that destructive anger that's the problem. And here they even uh, draw a connection between anger as an addiction. And what they mean by that is just what we talked about when we looked at, you know, do angry people get their way? And that that can feel sometimes in the short term like it's a true statement, but of course, long term, it's not. And with addiction, there's a very similar pattern, um, right? Destructive anger feels good in the moment. Person can feel quite powerful, hyped up, doesn't feel bad, right? And it's the long-term problem with it. And because seeking safety is built for a population of people who are have experienced trauma or maybe still are, and have or maybe still are experiencing addiction, that same model of the short-term payoff, long-term loss is one that rings true. I really look at the idea that venting doesn't work and destructive anger never works in the long-term. Well, how do they do that? They've got three phases in seeking safety, motivate, contain, and listen. So over the course of the typically group meetings within seeking safety, motivate, contain, and listen. And motivate is to really help someone reach their own realization about the costs of their anger. How do they track and look at it so that it doesn't surprise them every time it happens? They can start to see their own pattern, right? If we can predict it, we can prevent it. And we includes the clients, has to. And even seeking safety includes a process of getting feedback about your anger from others so that the client goes to others in their life and say, what's it like for you when I go off? What's been your experience of me during that? In terms of contain, This part even has an overlap with that Ericksonian view we mentioned before, which is to replace uh, the potential of anger's negativity with a different emotion or feeling. And so part of the way that seeking safety looks at this second phase is focus on what you're grateful for. This moment may be lousy for nine reasons, but what's one thing you're grateful for? all things being said. And practice putting it off. If you're still upset in a half hour, then you do you. But give it a half hour to think it through. Because so much of 
what happens in the patterns of those with destructive anger is the instantaneous action that leads to the long-term negative ramifications. You know, if after a half hour, you still think so, right? Do what you got to do. Motivate, contain, and then listen. And listening is about noticing those patterns. And here we have the idea of looking for feelings underneath the anger. And in this conceptualization, it's about rebuilding the coping strategies that maybe the substance has been playing in their life. That the alcohol or opioids or maybe even the meth have been dulling or distracting or distorting their experience of some of that betrayal and vulnerability. And being able to build coping strategies enough so that they can look for those feelings and go through them with support from others so that they no longer need the substance and the anger doesn't need to show up there as a way to hide it. Well, moving to our third evidence-based practice, interpersonal psychotherapy for depression. And I say for depression because uh, in LA County, in terms of an EBP, that's what we've got. But IPT also works for anxiety. It also works for PTSD, it works for any other number of uh, issues. And it's all evidence-based, but well, for another time. And the way that anger happens interpersonally maybe has different levels. There can be an overtly hostile conflict. That's what we often think of. And that might be intimate partner violence or verbal abuse. Betrayal can also be a circumstance or even an expression of anger. Getting back at someone through betrayal or the reactions people have when they are betrayed. And even to recognize how disappointments sometimes include, provoke, and are part of anger. If someone doesn't get a promotion that they wanted, or if there are other expectations they may have. Sometimes January is performance evaluation season in different workplaces. Um, boy, those performance evals sometimes are full of disappointment, electricity, and anger. There are inhibited conflicts. For those who may have a partner with illness or disability, when we talk about anger expression in, very typically in this inhibited conflict, it's not something that you yell at someone else about or that our clients would yell at someone else about, but caregivers often feel trapped in inhibited conflict. Sometimes there's subtle mistreatment, denial of intimacy or verbal abuse. And sometimes as our clients are navigating with their family, the degree to which they are on their own or dependent upon, that process includes its own conflict and potential for anger. Well, how does IPT address that? Well, first is looking at it as a communication. So to be able to communicate and say, what's it like when you express anger with others? How do you respond when others are angry with you? Looking at anger as 
a communication in and of itself. And, and we've maybe heard the phrase, you can't not communicate. Uh, everything we do is a communication. The actual verbal content is a small percentage. And in IPT, there are any number of strategies to address the interpersonal disputes, even the clarification. And it's fairly simple. I'll, I'll tell you about it. Uh, and hopefully it's simple enough that just the verbal description will get it across. You sort of draw um, an up and down line on the left side of a page. And then along the bottom, you draw a horizontal line. And you say on the up and down line, let's call that the intensity of the conflict. And on the line across the bottom, let's put how important is this relationship to you? So that if it's a very intense conflict, it will be up at the top. And if it's a relationship that's very important to you, it would be all the way to the right. And then the person would put their X in the upper right-hand corner of the page. And really this clarification that you do together with the client is about helping them to be able to see how they're going to handle essentially in any relationship in which there's conflict, um, you kind of have three choices, right? Mend it, end it, or change your expectations. And if the relationship is not that important and the conflict is intense, oh, end it. If the relationship is important, well, then you start to really talk about mend it or change your expectations. And within that is the expression of affect. How does that anger show up? How intense is it? How do other people take it in? And to analyze the back and forth between people. Are there certain people with whom when you're angry and you talk to them, you calm down? And are there others with whom when you're angry and you talk to them, it gets worse? And considering the idea that one way to prevent anger is to prevent those triggers, and you can prevent those triggers by solving the problems. So one of the questions you probably didn't get asked in your job interview was, are you perfect? Because you're not. We're not. We can't be. And there's a potential for us to over or underreact too. As we talked about at the very beginning, even the way that we perceive whether a client is or isn't angry comes through our own personal lens. And we have to look for our own potential biases. And those may be as blunt as racial, racial diversity issues, but it may be about our own histories. You know, the smart money in any group of people in the helping profession is about a third to half have their own childhood trauma too. And we can over or underreact in anticipation of an anger escalation in the moment when anger may be coming our way or after the episode in terms of what next. Well, what do we carry, right? And in general, we, we may have our own trait anger. We may have circumstances that provoke us. We may have a sense of justice. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that because very often when we have episodes of anger escalation from a client, it may include aggression and property destruction. Well, those things are sometimes phrased and thought of as crimes. 
And what is it that separates an expression of a symptom versus an action that was willful and purposeful? And when do we meet these things with justice? And when do we meet them with treatment? And, you know, our own reactivity and the way that we judge these symptoms, we want to be as fair as possible toward all of the clients we work with. It has to be. And we may have emotional reactions to a client. There may be some clients we like more than others. Well, you know, it's a job responsibility to find a way to like our clients. But boy, that's hard. But it's work. And if we just maybe figure it's going to happen with some and not with others, and if we look at it like sort of an automatic thing that happens, I think we're maybe ignoring an aspect of our professionalism. We've got to have our emotional reactions to the client be as constructive as possible. And we may reach assumptions about a client's. And let's not also forget our own lives have ups and downs. Um, you know, this presentation really doesn't talk too much about the pandemic, but I'll spend just a second to speak about it. And when I say the pandemic, um, I don't just mean COVID. Whatever this past year has included for you, it's included more than one thing, right? And that may be about the isolation in our homes. That may be about money that's been lost uh, in your family. That may be about racial justice and injustice, particularly around policing, or perhaps in general. If you're Armenian, it may be connected with Artsakh. If you're Asian, it may be connected with Hong Kong. If you are someone who, and more and more people are part of this group, people whose um, family members or loved ones have had extreme negative reactions to the disease and ended up in intensive care or even dead. The grief and loss issues that people are dealing with now are piling up. And there's a survey that the CDC does every couple weeks. It's called the Household Pulse. They have kind of a representative sample of Americans they ask. And compared to 2019, right about now in America, your typical American over 18 is reporting four times the symptoms or I should say four times as many Americans over 18 are reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression. So it was about 11% of Americans reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression in 2019. And it's in the low 40% now. Our own life's in doubt, our own ups and downs in our own lives. And that's all real. And it's never about us being numb. It's always about us being able to integrate and incorporate our own experience to be that much more helpful. Empathy really in some ways depends on that. And our own reactivity is dependent upon it. So that becomes something for us to be connected to and work on. Uh, I promise I won't short 
shift of the self-care section as we move toward the end. Because when it gets hot, we have to find ways to be cool, right? And our communication depends on our self-control. And if we're starting to move away from baseline, our thoughts get blurred. If we start to move away from baseline, we ourselves might go into fight, flight, or freeze. Now, that typically for us, fight doesn't mean I'm going to make a fist and, you know, sock a client. You know, that's not like that. But fight could look a lot of different ways. That's sometimes about going, you know, into the treatment team and saying, this person's discharged. I can't look at their face one more day. Um, that's fight. All right. Flight is, uh, you know, this job is BS. I quit. Right. It's not not necessarily just if you were meeting with a client in the alley and they got angry and you ran away. Right. It, it, it doesn't look quite like that. But boy, sometimes it does feel personal when our clients get angry. And when anger's coming our way, boy, uh, that's rough, especially with clients for whom we really give it all we got. I'd like to think in, in all likelihood we do that with everybody. Uh, working in community mental health, whether it's uh, with county or for agencies, it's about giving. And it can feel like a betrayal if our client yells at us or accuses us or threatens us or shoves us. And our thoughts, feelings, and actions boy, it can feel personal. And we have to consider what makes us more likely to think and intervene as opposed to instinctually feel and react, right? One of those is going to work and one of those is not. And the way things are coming at us may be for any number of reasons. Sometimes it's just how you look. It might be about our face, our hair, our clothes. Uh, and we might remind the client of someone or of something. Right, the most uh, dramatic example for me once was a kid that I was working with uh, who in the middle of her crisis, uh, when she got angry and working with her had gone just fine up until that point, but in the middle of her crisis, when I was in my mind, taking the steps to help her regain self-control, she looked at me terrified and started backing up um, frantically and desperately. And I looked over at her mom. I was like, what's happening right now? And she's like, she's looking at you the same way she used to look at her father when he beat me. And I thought, oh, dang. Something about this moment made me come across like that person. And you know, how do we how do we look if not just our clothes and our hair, et cetera, right? It's uh, experience shows on our face and in our eyes. And that's often to our advantage, particularly those of us who have lived experience it's not just about saying, I know because I went through this too, right? That's the explicit statement of lived experience. But very often, 
the way that your eyes and face react when someone's speaking, they know you get it. But sometimes our face shows that we're irritated. And sometimes we're just irritated with our job. Sometimes our boss is a drag and the work sucks and the promotion we thought we were going to get, we didn't. Um, and all that irritation might show on our face and someone might consider that a communication toward them. And there can be any number of perceptions connected to jewelry or tattoos or clothes. And very often those three things communicate part of who we are and what we believe. And this is my sort of, uh, you know, rub your chin in the thoughtful posture. Might someone take your Instagram personally? And so clients will look us up. And not just because they're clients, because people look people up, right? That's why. But I'll give an example that uh, I experienced maybe six years ago. A mom was bringing her child to our clinic and they were receiving treatment in another clinic. I was like, well, why are you leaving that clinic? Um, and what she said was, actually, I like that clinic and I think they do a good job, but I looked at the TBS workers Instagram and they had a picture of the work group, you know, out for drinks after work. And the first thing that comes to my mind is like, oh shoot, out for drinks. It's too alcoholy or it's too and that wasn't it. Uh, but the caption said, after a long day with the kids. And she said, I don't want my child being treated by someone who has to drink off the day. And I thought, of oh, son of a gun. Uh, I'm sure that's not what the treatment staff meant when they posted that. Uh, but sometimes what can make someone angry toward us may be things that we don't intentionally do at all. Remember, to conclude that you're angry involves those cognitions. Was this purposeful, directed at me? and under the other person's control, if they reach that conclusion, they get angry. Sometimes it's how we sound. And people are very sensitive to sound when they're escalated. Pitch, pace, tone of voice. They communicate on their own. And that's, you know, a, a famous finding from the 70s. So it's pretty well entrenched within communication theory that about 7% of communications is... I don't have a, a reference on this, so I'll say it out loud. Marabian et al., 1970, six. 93% um, of the communication are these other factors. So let's move on, and I'm going to just take a quick look at my slides to make sure I'm in the right spot. Okay, cool. For those of you who may have worked in hospital or residential care, PROACT is probably something that you're familiar with. In this next section, I'm gonna use some information that I've gotten from PROACT. I used to be a PROACT trainer. Uh, professional Assault Crisis Training is what that stands for. 
And one of the very helpful aspects that they look at during an escalation in a crisis is if you can understand the client's motivation, then maybe you can tailor your approach. Because less than 10% is your content. So let's consider your approach. So here we have four possible motivations that a client may have. And by motivations, I mean maybe emotional states, right? Are they scared? Are they frustrated? Are they manipulating? Or are they traumatized? And this, this part, this fourth one, isn't out of the... Um, Proact book. Typically, they will look here for a different one, um, but this one's included from other aspects of the literature. So, if we conclude that the, and we know this maybe from our history of the client or our work with the client, or maybe just the signs and signals that we see in the moment that they're scared, then we adjust our speech to be softer and slower. And we want our gestures to be non-threatening. We keep our hands in sight and we move them slowly. And the way that we are interacting in person is that we're more likely to be alongside and to bend our knees a little and be lower than the client so that we don't come across in a way that is intimidating toward them. For the client who is frustrated, their anger is coming out of frustration. Well, I should also say the, the communication, back to scared, the communication that comes across there without the verbal explicitness of it, the communication that comes across is, I'm here to keep you safe. And that's what we look for with those speech and posture and position patterns. For frustration, the idea is, you know, stick with me and I'll help you get back in control. The frustrated person is unable to get what they want and they're losing control in the process. Stick with me and I'll be able to help you get back in control. So we have a speech pattern that's firm. It's a leadership pattern. It's clear. It's strong. We, in fact, will kind of square up with the client, not square off with the client, <laughs> square up with the client. And I guess the to operationalize that difference, we're not getting within their physical space. We're going to keep three feet or further away, right? Uh, sometimes we'd say the, uh, the length of a leg, we don't want to get kicked. Uh, so we keep away, but we'll stay square because stick with me, right? Don't lose me, stick with me, I'll help you through this. And that's the way that we speak with someone who's frustrated. Even when they're angry, even when the storm is coming, sometimes anger is part of a pattern of manipulation, an attempt to get what they want through kind of twisted sideways means. And what we're looking to communicate with that anger is um, that we want them to re-engage in a healthier way. And in fact, that's maybe a smart moment for me to talk about the word ignoring, um, that's part of our uh, training toolkit that we've all got. We all know how to ignore when we need to. 
But I want to make sure that we all really, really understand that one. Because ignoring is really part one of the strategy, right? And even in behavioral terms, it's referred to as differential reinforcement of other behavior. In the more specific behavioral terms, it's not just called ignoring. It's differential reinforcement of other. And the reason is part one is ignoring, not attending to the twisted or sideways attempts to get what they want. But part two, a very important part is the immediate reinforcement of, the re-engaging with someone when they switch to the appropriate way of doing it. Differential reinforcement of other. Once the other way shows up, we're all over it. So with a person who's manipulating, we may have a communication pattern, separate and distinct from our verbal content, that's removed or repetitive. Our posture may be closed. We don't take steps to um, humiliate someone, right? We're not trying to roll our eyes or anything like that. But we're not giving in. But then when improvement shows up, we're all over. Oh, terrific. I'm glad we're back. Let's solve this problem together. I'm on board with you. Right? Once it starts getting worked in a different direction, then we become a little more removed, a little more closed in distance. For the client who's traumatized, very similar to the one who is scared. But I think there's another aspect there that really just looks at paying attention to the degree to which we are neutral and non-threatening. And we know this very often from our history that we have with the clients, not our personal history, but the, the case history that we know of. If they've been through trauma, um, there may be an aspect that where we need to look at that. So regarding the way that we understand motivation and adjust ourselves to that motivation, boy, that takes a clear head. And back to the idea of if we are starting to lose our own self-control in the moment, we don't have a clear enough head to do this, especially because it doesn't mean someone picks a motive and sticks with it all day. 10 minutes later, it might switch. If it switches, we want to be able to switch with it. Meanwhile, the client's reaching conclusions about us. This anger escalation really is a communication pattern. And people might misinterpret our intentions. Interpretation was this purposeful toward me and under the other person's control. Escalated people are likely to misinterpret our intentions. And at the same time, under extreme stress, the importance of diversity is heightened. So a client who may view you in any number of positive ways may really highlight the fact that you are part of their out group. Um, I don't have a way to see your faces when I make this next statement, but uh, I'll imagine it. Uh, 
let's also recognize that political party is the new diversity. And very typically, we've thought of diversity in terms of race and ethnicity, gender, age, socioeconomic status, SOGI categories. And rightfully, we should, of course. Um, but there's a, there's a different political divide, and our clients may be on one end of that or reaching conclusions about us as it connects to that. That's typically unsaid, uh, but I wanted to sort of put it there. And we knew this, but I'll just say it anyways. Um, the answer is effective communication. <laughs> That's what works. I know that the word assertiveness, and we've just kind of have been talking about diversity categories. Sometimes assertiveness can be um, maybe thought of as one that doesn't cross groups as easily. So we'll just look at effective as a more important word, communication that works. Open, honest, communicating feelings, thoughts, and beliefs without violating the feelings, thoughts, and beliefs of others. What should we look out for? If our client feels humiliated, they will experience that as aggression toward them. Hmm. So our decisions and our actions go through the client's filter. We have to look out. And when people are escalated, they put themselves in compromising positions. They and we do dumb stuff when we're escalated. And this gets back to that Rogerian foundation to all mental health interventions. Carl Rogers said, right, the uh, most important part of treatment is a genuine, empathic, and unconditionally positive regard relationship with the client. Genuine, empathic, and unconditionally positive. And in some ways, we take that for granted. Well, of course I'm that, I'm those things. Now let me talk about what strategies and techniques I'll use, or what ADP I'll learn. But, but hold, hold on, hold on a second. That's hard to be both genuine and unconditionally positive when someone's like, eh, you. And then you're like, ooh, whoops. If I'm genuine, <laughs> that's different than if I'm unconditionally positive, but how am I both at once and empathic? That's hard. Most of the literature on de-escalation honestly comes from two fields other than mental health. It comes from nursing and it comes from uh, law enforcement. And here's one from nursing. You know, I, I like how it spells something, uh, but I also like the steps and the explicit sense of, you know, what do you do in these moments when you're on the other end of escalation? So I'll go through this list. This isn't really an outline for us, and I'm not sure you even want to memorize this, but just to know that this is part of training for some nurses. Step one is listen. There is a tendency as someone is escalating to start shushing them. But within this low line model is the assumption that an escalation is a communication. It's, it's a dysfunctional and effective communication, but it's a communication nonetheless. So try to listen for the legitimate 
part of it, right? If the person were communicating in a way that didn't include this escalation, what would they be talking about? And can you respond to that? And offer solutions. Also offer with kindness, a glass of water, a blanket, some quiet time. Don't rush it. Give them a second to answer. You don't have to fill up every second. And very often we, we find ourselves as soon as the person who's escalated, and often when someone's escalated, they're talking quickly and loudly. So whenever there's that option, we try to shoehorn our way into the conversation, but give it a second. Don't rush it. Don't push it. Keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for risks of potential danger that might include objects in the room that could be used as a weapon. That might be a stapler or uh, a coffee cup or a pen or a chair. But also, it's about looking, being able to know eye contact is an important part of the way that we communicate. And sometimes we'll be making that direct eye contact, but sometimes we might be going to the client's shoulder. Even when we look back at that part from PROACT that said, you know, if the person is scared, we may not be making direct eye contact with them, maybe more toward their shoulder. If they're manipulating, that's an even more typical one. If they're manipulating, we will not give them eye contact until they are engaging um, sensibly, and then we bring the eye contact back. This one was interesting. Um, dog owners will all uh, go, oh, yeah, say incline your head. Make it look like you're listening. And, and that one really struck me as, as a oh, wow kind of moment. But I get it, right? In order to prevent yourself from maybe miscommunicating disinterest, tilt your head a little. Nod as they're speaking and express that you understand what they're talking about. I want to understand, right, let me know what you, you really are talking about. Do I have it right? One of the important things to think of with escalation is that the person who's escalated sometimes has their ears or the connection between their ears and their brain kind of blocked off. Stuff's just happening too much in other places. The energy is about what's coming out of the mouth and the arms and the feet more than it's about how information is coming in through the ears. And in order to unlock the person's ears to re-engage in a dialogue, maybe the first step is finding ways to agree. And so through Project Beta, this was the, um, I think, Academy of Emergency Psychiatry got a bunch of experts together. Project Beta is best practices in the evaluation and treatment of agitation. They looked at, find a way to agree. Agree with something, right? Even in the most absurd circumstance, agree with something, either the objective truth. And if you don't have an objective truth you can agree on, the principle. And if you can't agree with the truth of the principle, play the odds but find a way to express to the client, yeah, I agree with 
X. So now at, at 10.30 in the morning, what do we say <laughs> in the moment when someone is escalated and angry? Well, as you might guess, we're coaching for self-control. And as we're coaching for self-control, we're very typically modeling it at the same time. Right? And imagine the difference between you need to take three deep breaths right now. You know that's part of your plan. Go ahead and do that until we can talk, right? Right. Imagine that as you know, option A. And then option B is I'm gonna take a few breaths to chill out. I'd love if you join me. Here we go. There's one. You know, and the way that we coach is about persuasion and influence. We know this is our job. We're persuading and influencing our clients toward healthier, more functional lives. We can do the counting. Sometimes that's counting backwards from 10. Sometimes that's about a back and forth you do with the client. If you're really engaged with them, you can say, let's count um, by threes up to 30. I'll go first three. You know, and sometimes when you say, I'll go first three, they say, man, you. And you're like, six? <laughs> and sometimes you can pull them in. Coaching self-control. Ask them to see if they can feel how fast the heart's beating. Remember, when we look at some of the cues that people experience, the cues to physical sensations related to the anger escalation, uh, blood pressure and adrenaline, tougher to check in the moment, but heart rate's easier to check in the moment. What are we supposed to say in the moment? We want to be able to paraphrase. Well, even this part isn't quite a paraphrase. This, this is kind of a directive. I want to understand why this means so much to you. Because very typically in escalation, it's an overreaction to a situation. That anger that our clients are experiencing, maybe in sometimes you hear words like righteous anger or blind rage, meaning they, they've, they've lost track and lost sight of just the connection between the situation and, and their expression. But we really do want to pay attention to why does it mean that much to them? Why did that trigger lead to this reaction? And can we address the trigger? Of course we want to do that. Help me understand why this means. And it's even okay to say stuff like, you know, I can't hear you. I can't understand why it means so much to you with all the yelling, but can you help me get it? I, I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm not giving up for a second. Help me get it though. That's a different door to open. So we can and we should set limits. Toward that end, our communication matters. There are certain words that really do uh, trigger just on their own, especially when someone's escalated. If we start a sentence with the word we, you need to, it's more likely to backfire than if we just search and replace for our own vocabulary and put let's. You need to sit down. Let's sit down. Well, in fact, I'll try to do that again with the same tone and 
and pitch and everything. You need to sit down. Let's sit down. And let's is more likely to work. We can say out loud, injury is unacceptable. I'm here with you. We're together through this. I'm going to help you get through this, but injury is unacceptable. Okay. Let's put it out there. It's real. If necessary, we can inform the client that assault may lead to arrest. And we have to say may because we don't know uh, what law enforcement may do in that situation. But it might. Because what are we really trying to do during a de-escalation, right? A good de-escalation does what? Well, the answer is we just try to get back to baseline. And once we've done that, then we can do all kinds of problem solving and content analysis, consequences if we need to, right? But a good de-escalation de-escalates. There's no mystery there. Sometimes feels a little out of reach for us as a conclusion in the moment, but there's no mystery there. We can provide choices of what to do, proposing alternatives. Here's just a little hint. If we tell people what not to do, uh, stop yelling, for example, as a directive, that's not going to work. But let's speak more quietly. That's more likely to work. Mentioned before that humiliation can be seen as aggressive and the way that people sometimes behave during an escalation compromises their own dignity. So we want to give them options to save face. We can be kind to someone as de-escalation is occurring. That's okay. We can be kind. And that's not reinforcing an escalation, right? On the slim chance that someone may start to develop a pattern of escalation in order to receive kindness from us. Um, and, and that would be about a pattern that got established that way. And that's kind of a one in a thousand kind of occurrence. Um, then we can address and deal with that pattern and help people experience kindness of others in different ways. But don't worry about, you know, sometimes you, and I've heard people say this sometimes, well, don't be nice to them. Now, they'll just be more likely to do it. They'll just be reinforced or something like that. But of course, there does have to be accountability. Um, yeah, people are responsible for their actions. Not during uh, an escalation, there can't be accountability. That's hard to do. It's more likely to work. You know, I think of accountability as functioning. So it's more likely to work after return to a baseline. Accountability is likely to backfire during escalation because thinking is compromised. And when thinking is compromised, misunderstandings are common. If we think about it, even in terms of brain activity, we sort of alluded to that earlier, that you know, give and take between the frontal lobes, that's where thinking planning comes in. Uh, and the emotional storm that often happens in the limbic system, the amygdala, there's more activity in the 
limbic system and amygdala than there is in the frontal lobe during a crisis, so thinking's limited. Body's agitated. And what is accountability anyways, right? Accountability is designed for people to learn, right? Because of this accountability, our assumption would say, next time they will make a better choice. And that's learning. Because of what happened, it will change my <laughs> actions in the future. Learning's compromised in escalation. Let's not do it. Yeah, we may very well bring accountability into the picture after a return to baseline. How do we know if accountability worked? Did it work? Next time, did it work? Now, accountability has any number of functions and, and I won't be naive about that, right? There's accountability for our client, but sometimes others who are witness or even victims of that escalation will want accountability. And the impact of that accountability is felt by them. That's sometimes the, uh, that strong call for justice. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm saying that that's there. And we do have to attend to the way that others view accountability. And we have to include that as part of our treatment planning strategy in the way that we deal with clients and collaterals and others and our own treatment staffs, staff and ourselves. Because it's not just about the client escalating. A client alone in a room by himself freaking out. Sometimes that happens. But very often there are other people around one person getting upset can make another person upset. We looked at that model before, the way that um, antagonism can lead someone right back to the trigger. I don't know why, but very often when they're stepping up to them, sometimes the shirt comes off <laughs> just to say, okay, just to let you know this is a real fight. Uh, it, what about contagion? How do family members own adrenaline, heart rate, blood pressure? Cognitions about what was purposeful, intentional, and directed toward them, or those, or bystanders. And those bystanders may be strangers. We haven't met them. We may be working with our cl client on a sidewalk, and some people walk by, and our escalated client turns to them and lets fly. Now it's like, okay, <laughs> now now who are we intervening with right, uh, and we're gonna hope that our own self-control and our own influence can add to prevention of a volatile situation with ingredients that we, we don't know about. Some bystanders co-escalate. Some get traumatized. You know, some dig it. Um, we may witness one of our colleagues. I, I don't, uh, let me rephrase that. We may be part of an intervention where one of our colleagues moves away from self-control. And we want to be there to support and help and guide our colleague to more professional behavior. We would really hope they do the same for us. Because, you know, we may need backup. Sometimes we do. And, you know, as the months go by, we'll be back in person more often with our clients, hopefully, in uh, 
you know, June, July, August, September. We're talking about visiting with clients more and more in person. Sometimes we just need a different voice. Sometimes our voice is the wrong one at the moment. It's been right all the way up till now, but they've had about a face full of us and they need something else. Sometimes it's about if you're working with a group and two of them are squaring off with each other, sometimes we need to divide and de-escalate. Can we get someone else into the moment to help this person de-escalate while I help that person de-escalate? You know, I, we have to realistically acknowledge that sometimes we need a witness. Sometimes anger, we talked about how fight and flight doesn't mean throw a punch or run away, right? Fight, fight could also mean a, a false accusation. An angry, escalated client may say, I'm going to accuse you of, they wouldn't maybe use those exact words, X. And then we think like, oh, shoot, I'm in a spot right now. We may need backup to maintain safety. And we have questions whether we formed an internal crisis team at our clinic. Should we? Um, and definitely um, one of the legacies of 2020 in mental health will be the threshold and relationship, the threshold of decisions related to and the relationship with police departments and the interactions with our clients. And how do we make those decisions and maintain safety? And to be able to track ourselves well enough to know that if we're losing self-control, we may need a colleague. We may need to hospitalize. We may need police backup. There may be times when we press charges. And the treatment plan's our guide. And very typically, that exact moment isn't the time to decide about it. Typically, we want to look at or take a break. What did they say in seeking safety? Uh, take a half hour to think about it and then take your action. But sometimes we press charges. And crimes may be committed against us or toward other clients. We didn't take this job with the understanding that we'd get punched out. It could be assaulted, it could be a crime. It could be theft or harassment. And being able to tell whether it's a treatment need or a justice need or whether the justice need is part of our treatment plan to prevent an escalation over time, longer term escalation, where if someone gets away with enough things in a row, then they keep trying something even worse. Maybe a justice uh, intervention, pressing charges, prevents that negative escalation from becoming even more dangerous. And even after an escalation, there's, there's a temptation for any of us, I think, to say, whew, thank God that's over, right? <laughs> Let's just get on with it. In the next session, we may meet with a client. We may pick up where we left off, uh, not during the crisis, but where we left off before the crisis. And I would advise otherwise to say, let's debrief that one. And let's debrief it also because diversity issues on the client's part really do also sometimes percolate even afterwards. And we may do this within a treatment team, depending on 
the intensity and location of the crisis, and we may do this just during a session. Attributions are where it's at during these debriefings. Why, why did you do that? Why do you think you did that? Why do you think I did this? Or why did the police do that? Or the teacher do that? Why did they do that? And how can we address this? And that can sometimes give us a window into the cognitive uh, processing that our clients may have. The reason they did that was because they hate my guts. And you, and you might look and go like, well, but they kept saying, it, let's say it was their mother. Um, she kept saying she loves you and she wants to help you do the right thing, but she can't have you um, throwing your plate against the wall whenever your brother provokes you. So I didn't hear that she hates your guts. Let's talk a little bit about us, a little more about us. We're talking about escalation that's anger-fueled from clients who have a pattern of that. And our job can then have a risk for burnout. Burnout's got three parts. Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a decreased sense of, oh, it says personal accomplishment. I mean, professional accomplishment. And, you know, the emotional exhaustion part, boy, that's got a pandemic overlay, doesn't it? You know, raise your hand if you don't feel fatigue. Uh, and we're all like, well, son of a gun, all the hands stayed down. Uh, but it's a different kind of feeling drained extended, overextended, and exhausted by your work. Depersonalization is an interesting aspect of burnout, um, kind of a process by which clients start to end up dehumanized in your eyes, and you lose a sense of sensitivity to their problems. And that decreased sense of professional accomplishment, you know, Work's just not doing it for me anymore. I don't even think I'm making a difference with my clients. I used to get jazzed uh, by helping. Now it just feels like the same old rut. This signals a burnout. But burnout doesn't just arrive on its own in the human services field. It has a cousin, and its cousin is compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue, uh, 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 any number of people can get burnout, right? Uh, any number of professions. But for us, compassion fatigue includes stuff like secondary traumatic stress. We hear about what our clients have been through and we bring empathy, unconditional positive regard and genuineness to the moment, back to the notion that ain't easy. That Rogerian foundation of positive treatment, genuine empathy, unconditional positive regard, that's real deal. That's giving away a bit of our heart, each and every interaction. And as we're repeatedly exposed to what our clients have been through, we ourselves can feel that. And sometimes that impacts our sleep. Sometimes that leads to, and this is an odd thing. When we think of re-experiencing, right? That's one of the symptoms of PTSD is re-experiencing. And, and typically that includes these intrusive images that may pop into your head. Sometimes when we hear our clients describe what they've been through, we can get an image of what that was. Keep in mind, we never saw it in the first place. 
but we can get an image of what they went through in our head, and we can't drop it. It's a signal of secondary traumatic stress. And we can experience compassion dissatisfaction. It just doesn't feel good anymore. Doing a good job doesn't feel as satisfying to me as before. And honestly, I think my colleagues are all jerks um, in this whole endeavor is a sham, right? No one's getting any better. Those kind of comments, compassion, dissatisfaction. Well, what do we do about that? Because compassion, fatigue and burnout has any number of negative results. You know, a professional athlete can sprain their ankle or bust a rib. Those are job risks and injuries. I'd make the case these are risks and injuries for us in our field. These are what we are working to prevent. And over the course of our careers, you know, there are going to be some years are going to be better than others. Just like the athlete who has to recover from a torn Achilles, we may have to recover from burnout. And it can show up in our family, our own family. It can show up in terms of a sense of self-blame or futility, decreased job commitment. We know these. But let's think of it as a job risk. We have to take care. We have to take action. We can't just blindly move ahead and say, maybe we will, maybe we won't. So what goes into self-care? What can we do? And definitely this year, it's not like we're getting on a plane and going someplace fabulous. So what do we do? Um, Self-care is a job skill for us. Um, and a good night's sleep is part of it. And, you know, since March, I know a lot of people's sleep schedules have come, uh, you know, off kilter. But taking the effort to bring structure to your sleep is an important piece. Seeking support. It's also keep in mind the day of the days of um, bumping into someone in the hallway or, or popping your head into someone's office. Those are limited now. So we have to take a different intentionality to support. And empathy for our clients, genuine empathy and unconditional positive regard. By the way, that's not a yes or no on or off. It's something we want to dial in. And people who are newer to the field in the first one, two, or three years are more at risk for burnout. And the general thinking with that is often because they over-empathize. And those feelings uh, can be overwhelming. We learn to dial it in. We don't want to be distance from our clients and we don't want to experience the exact same thing that they're experiencing because then we lose our ability to be objective and help. We want to feel a little of what they're feeling. That's empathy. You got to find something you enjoy, boy. And with this, uh, the pandemic and even beyond strategies, um, I think I saw a, a, a recent article 
uh, that tracked maybe a thousand people in Northern California in terms of those who are experiencing pandemic stress relative to those who aren't. Um, those who aren't experiencing pandemic stress were more likely to be doing physical exercise um, and more likely to be doing uh, things like reading. Those who are experiencing, experiencing more stress, just like you'd expect, more TV, more eating. Uh, find something you're good at and do it. Find something you care about and do it. If you do, if you if you love and care about something that's outside of the human services work, maybe that's even better, right? I think there was a uh, I think there was a new mountain lion recently tagged in the Santa Monica Mountains, P ninety five. What? That's awesome. In Citizens for Los Angeles Wildlife, that's the world's greatest acronym. It spells CLAW. So, right, find something you love and join it. And leave work at work. Boy, is that different now, isn't it? Um, because it, you may be working out of your bedroom. And how do you leave work at work then? Well, you have to develop a ritual to do that. You have to find a way that maybe even just the laptop goes in a drawer instead of on a desk or on a table. Leave work at work. Find a way as much as you can to separate those because it's about maintaining our sense of hope, compassion, and perspective. That's what we're bringing to the moment. And that might be about visualizing our interventions working before a session, picture it working. It might be about, you know, instead of an agency mission statement, having a personal mission statement that I can go to, you can go to on a tough day. So I can know, here's why I do this. My job is so that anyone in the community without money can get the kind of care that a millionaire wishes they got. So guess what I'm bringing today? I'm bringing care that a millionaire would wish they could get. If that's your, well, that happens to be mine. Uh, but have your own. Access it on a tough day. Because it's not, you know, with self-care, we're in this together, right? Um uh, the social support matters. Other people matter. Isolation is uh, a heck of a thing right now. But we're here for each other. We reach out to each other. And we can count on each other. It's about self-regulation with escalation, right? For our clients and for ourselves. The degree that we monitor, we evaluate, and counting, reward, and recognize. It's about taking care of ourselves and taking care of those around us. And that's all I got. <laughs>